to the ThinkCast from ThinkCon 2012. I'm Sarah Castor-Perry and in this episode we'll hear from Martin Robbins from The Guardian, Jane Gregory, an Associate Fellow of the Open University, and Professor John Norton, who'll all be talking about the present and the future of science communication. You'll also hear Guyton Lee from the Cambridge Science Centre, who compared the panel talk. Science communication as a field I tend to have a few frustrations with. Um, leaving the media stuff aside for the moment, because I'm sure we'll come back to that. Um, There's also an issue on the kind of uh, academic side in terms of how people research science communication, establish good ways to do it and communicate that to people. Um, I think there's a perception among some writers, certainly, that uh, science communication experts can come across as uh, almost quite arrogant on the basis of fairly limited knowledge and and understanding of of new media and, and the internet and on what it's possible to do nowadays. And I'm not going to name names because that would be unfair on people like Frank Swain and Alan Shahar. Um, <laughs> but there's this kind of rise of a sort of, uh, you know, you're not doing it right mentality among certain people and a minority in the field, I'm sure, but a quite a vocal and high profile minority that, um, that grates on some writers because writers are out there doing it and reaching big audiences and often science communicators aren't the best communicators themselves and, and don't bring the evidence um, to, to kind of help uh, with a, a way forward in terms of practical things that writers and communicators can do. Um, there's also a kind of absence, I think, of science communicators from certain areas of communication. Um, the most glaring examples are in the relationship between science and politics. Uh, and it's really kind of telling, I think, that the Science is Vital campaign, which fought to try and preserve science funding, at the last election wasn't started by senior scientists, wasn't started by science communicators particularly, but was started by a fairly junior uh, biologist who basically got fed up that no one else was doing anything and took matters into our own hands. Um, And similarly with things like the libel reform campaign, the scientific community were on the back foot over libel for some time, but it was other groups that ended up taking the lead on that. The other slight frustration from the point of view um, of somebody working in the media is a lack of practical stuff that we can use. And there are some really obvious and well-defined research questions which I would like to see tackled in more detail, which which aren't, but which would be very useful um, to newspapers, for example. So I was looking the other week for research into uh, comments, online comments on articles and, um, you know, what motivates people to leave them, how to encourage a better sense of community and comment sections, you know, how to develop a better relationship between readers and, um, and uh, writers, that's what we're called, aren't we? Um, and things like the effect, you know, interesting things about, say, the effect of the Times paywall and how that seems to improve the quality of comments on the Times website. And these are things that would be a real practical benefit to people actually doing science communication, uh, but there seems to be very limited research out there. Final thing, I'm just going to briefly go through these because I like to get to the bit where everyone's arguing rather than just me talking at you for ages. And the final thing that frustrates me is a lot of people don't seem to understand that science journalism is not science communication. In fact, science communication and science journalists are on different sides, not necessarily opposing sides, but not on quite the same sides. Science communicators are engaged with scientific community trying to broadcast their research, their findings, their ideas to a wider public. Science journalists are trying to inform the public. Okay? A science journalist shouldn't assume that a particular university press officer is giving them the right information any more than that they should assume 
you know, a, a party political press office is giving the right information. It's important that journalists um, realize that scientists are, are not special. Science itself is not particularly special. It's no more complex or difficult than many other areas that journalists cover, politics included. Um, and therefore, we have to treat them in a very similar way. And so, um, you know, science communication, science journalism, not the same thing. Um, in terms of the future, because this is about past, present and future of science communication, I suppose, uh, what would I like to see happen? Well, from the science communication side, I'd like to see support for a, a plurality of approaches. I think we have to be very humble about this. The internet is a fairly new thing. Social media is only a few years old. We know nothing. Our children and our children's children will laugh at how primitively we use this technology. So it's important to, to be humble, accepts that we're not really experts, we're explorers. Uh, and we need to figure this stuff out over a period of time. And, and what we need, what, what the science communication um, research community can provide is not um, you know, their expert opinion on what best practice is because they can't possibly do that yet. What they can provide is the best tools to evaluate what we're doing now and kind of aggregate this information as we continue to uh, you know, explore this, this new world that we live in. And I'll leave it there, I think. I'm going to jump in here and ask, um, so you talk about the difference between science communicators and science journalists. Do you think that is a recent split or are they being together? How do you feel that relationship works? They should always have been apart and I think um, largely, um, well I think you have to, one thing to understand is that the science journalism community is not one coherent mass. So you've got two ends of it really at the moment. You've got the higher quality kind of broadsheet stroke science journal, you know, nature news end, and then you've got the sort of more tabloidy end. Um, there is, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't going to mention them. I, I try not to mention that name. Um, there is a, a kind of difficulty there in that um, we're in danger of potentially of recreating something like the Westminster lobby in political journalism, where you have a bunch of journalists that become so close to politicians that um, well, for example, one result is that things like the expenses scandal a couple of years ago weren't uncovered by the Westminster lobby. They were uncovered by journalists operating outside of the system. And, and there's a danger that as the kind of uh, higher quality end of science journalists get cosier and cosier with uh, scientific institutions, that, that you, you lack some of the distance necessary to do proper journalism. And so I don't think it's a question of whether they're converging or drifting apart over time, but I do think some science journalists are becoming very, very close uh, and, and maybe a bit, you know, starting to regard themselves more as science communicators. I interviewed, sorry, I won't go on too long. I interviewed um, someone whose name I've just completely forgotten a while ago, but they said something uh, uh, quite interesting, which was that a lot of these students coming into their science communication course at um, City uh, University were um, basically coming in and, and she was asking, you know, why are you doing this? Why, why are you coming here to do a science journalism course? Sorry, this was. And they were saying, well, because we want to communicate science. And, and that's a worrying attitude that's maybe creeping in to some science um, journalism. Well, you were talking about politics and science, which uh, brings us nicely to uh, the, uh, Jane Gregory, who is an associate fellow of uh, the Open University, uh, studying the sort of sociology of science. And you're going to tell us a little bit more about how science is, a very, is very much embedded in political culture. Do you want to tell us a little bit more, Joy? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to start just by mentioning an, an idea uh, about um, uh, the public aspects of science, which is that it serves as a kind of an autobiography of science. So we can think of popular science as 
uh, science telling its own story in public. And now you know what autobiographies are like. If you read the autobiography of an actor or a footballer, you know you're going to get a nice, clean story. And if they've got their faults, then uh, they're told in such a way as to make you feel very sympathetic. So if we accept this idea uh, uh, for the time being that popular science is a kind of autobiography uh, of science, then it's, a, it's a doing a kind of uh, political public relations type work uh, for science itself. It tells us a tidy story about science that, that wants to be liked, and often this is done to achieve particular political ends. Now, popular science keeps open a channel for communication between scientists, po politicians and the public that might not uh, otherwise be there. And the way uh, sociologists like me like to talk about this is to say that it maintains a space on the cultural map. So popular science makes a place in culture where the public and politicians and scientists uh, can all come together. So we've got popular science, which is doing public relations for science, and it's doing it in a space where the public and scientists and politicians have a chance to interact. And thinking about this, it reminded me of a, a historical analogy, uh, perhaps, which is to do with archery. Now, there was a time when the crack troops uh, of the armies of England were the archers. And what happened in between the wars? Well, the, well, the bows and arrows got stuck in the back of the cupboard and everybody forgot how to shoot them. So somebody had the idea, let's encourage archery as a sport. And then by the time the next war comes around, everybody will be jolly good at archery and we can all rush into battle. So by having archery as a sport, you make uh, uh, the yeomen of England combat ready and I think popular science is something that makes society science ready in the same way. Now, a lot of popular science makes very direct political arguments. So uh, I'm not the first to use this uh, term, but Brian Cox will say, wow, look at the stars, aren't they amazing? And while we're all going, wow, they're amazing, he'll say, and by the way, the government really needs to fund particle physics. So there's that kind of very direct and obvious link. And even uh, uh, I saw um, uh, Paul Nurse doing his Dimbleby lecture on the telly a couple of weeks ago, and he was making exactly the same arguments. Listen to this bit of science. Isn't it wonderful? And because of that, uh, the government should be doing X, Y, and Z. So we go from this kind of overwhelming wow sensation to very uh, uh, straightforward political arguments without any sort of explication or, or argumentation in between. And now, it wasn't that long ago when if you saw somebody playing on our emotions like that, it would have been the opponents of science. It would have been the uh, animal research activists uh, who were doing that. And the scientists would be, would be uh, looking very worried and saying, uh, now come along, we really need to be uh, calmed down and be reasonable. So I think this is a definite shift in the way science is being talked about. And I think new media encourage that because new media like short bursts of emotion, they like image and sound, and they work very well for wow, and they don't work quite so well for explanations uh, and arguments. And there's an economic context for all this uh, too, and we are at a moment in uh, the history of capitalism where innovation is, is the driver. So our economic system thrives insofar as it does on novelty and on change. And even if you are not the one going down the high street and buying the gadgets, then you're relying on a society that does. 
in your home, uh, for your health care and for your food. And you'll um, not very often hear climate change campaigners, for example, saying uh, buy fewer things, uh, switch off your broadband and so on. Um, every uh, kind of social change seems to be about uh, new gadgets, uh, new ways to live using more. So even something like climate change, which some people understand as uh, one of the failures of an industrialised society, is seen as an opportunity for innovation. And to argue against that uh, seems like a return uh, to the dark ages. So we've got popular science creating this science-ready society, and the science-ready society is needed to host an economy which is uh, focused on innovation. And popular science does this as well as, at the same time, entertaining and sometimes enlightening you. But it tends to do it very much via the wow, via your emotions. And emotions carry very well in exactly the new media that the innovation economy uh, wants us to buy. Now, I don't say that's a bad thing, necessarily. Uh, we don't often question the value of innovation, although historically it's very unusual to think of innovation as a good thing. So we are at quite an unusual moment now where we have innovation as an unquestioned good. And there is, as you probably can see, a circularity to this issue which is quite hard to break into. And I think if we are trapped in something, then it's better to know what it is. And I think uh, as well it's worth uh, for us as members of the public to remember that if I'm right about this circularity, then for every one of those wows that we experience, someone's making money somewhere, and it's probably not any of us. Okay, so you may or may not know that unfortunately David Whitehouse couldn't be here today, uh, but we do have um, Professor John Norton, uh, who is the Emeritus Professor of the Public Understanding of Technology, stepping in and sort of uh, into David's shoes today. So um, John's going to be telling us a little bit about science and technology and how there is a little bit of a difference between them, lots of similarities, but the differences between them. But also to talk a little bit about the sort of ecosystem in which we live today um, in terms of how the media is used and consumed. John, over to you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I'm an engineer and I'm interested in science, of course. Um, but uh, what I wanted to focus on is the fact that in, in mainstream media, um, we tend to run science and technology together. So you look at some websites, and the category under which they report stuff is uh, science, stroke, tech, so it's science and technology run together. There is actually really important differences between the two, which, which elude the Daily Mail at any rate. Because, uh, well, what, for example, uh, a, great deal, a great deal of really important technology is not applied science. That's news to many people, but and in some cases, the scientific component of a lot of the technology is actually you know, relatively trivial compared to other things. Um, it's, it's the application of organized knowledge to practical problems. Some of that organized knowledge is scientific, a lot of it is other kinds of things. Um, but my main focus is, is, um, is public understanding of, of, of the internet, because I'm concerned about the fact that we have come as societies to, become, to be totally dependent on a network that almost nobody understands. Uh, and that understanding is, is very widespread at, at every level of our society, from the top of the government, top of corporations, uh, right down to, and particularly the average citizen, who's, whose lives are affected by this stuff, um, uh, but, but about which most people know very little. And I think 
um, the media have a responsibility there. En passant, I just wanted to, to, to second what my colleagues have been saying, which is that there is a very important difference between journalism and communication. Journalism, journalism involves um, doing a number of things. One of them is, is finding out and, and reporting stuff that powerful agencies don't want you to know. Uh, and it's quite different from communication in that sense. So, so there's, a, there's a tendency to say that scientific journalism is actually basically scientific PR. Um, and, and I think that's a real mistake, and unfortunately it's very widespread. And one sees it as, as, um, as Jane observed, for example, in the way in which organizations like the BBC give huge megaphones to people like Brian Cox, to, to Paul Nurse and the rest of it, who are basically special pleaders. Um, the, the point really is that science is very important in our society, of course, um, but it is a particular culture. Um, and if you want to see what the difference would be, would be, say, for example, in, the, in relation to some other area of, of life where we have more detached views, say, let us say banking. Would, would we want to talk about banking communication as the same thing as, as financial journalism? Answer, no. Uh, well, the same applies for, for, for science and, of course, for technology. Now, the, the point I really want to make is that what, what has happened, what is happening, is a really radical transformation of our media ecosystem, our information ecosystem, which is, I, I would argue, unimaginably different now from what it was 20 years ago um, in terms of its complexity, for example. Um, but, but if you wanted to, fig to, to single out things that are important for our discussion, first of all, we, are, we have moved from an ecosystem which was dominated by broadcast media, that is to say, few to many, uh, to something that's much more um, multi-sided. Uh, we have moved to a point where um, from, from an, er an era when publishing was dominated by gatekeepers and was centralized and so on. So a small number of agencies decided what would be published and then they, 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 they edited it and put it out to what Claire Shirky calls an era of the mass amateurization of publishing. Um, and most of this happens outside the market. Um, how many people here use Flickr, for example, for your photographs? Okay. Well, uh, how many people use YouTube? All right. Well, you know that at the moment, and it changes from day to day, about 60 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube every hour. Um, now, the, the point about this is that this ecosystem is characterized by uh, unimaginable, almost astronomical levels of abundance, whereas the previous ecosystem we speculate in was, was, dominate, was essentially characterized by scarcity. And what has happened in this, in this abundance is that the thing that's become really scarce, really, really, really scarce, is attention. That's the problem now. That's a measure of how different this ecosystem is. Um, and we've gone from this, 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 an era when editing happened at the center to, to effectively what happens is that filtering happens at the edge. That's what the, that's what's changed. Now, if you want to say what's changed in a nutshell and why is that, why is that important for, for, um, for, for media? Well, um, I've, I've been, for all my working life, I've been an academic and a journalist. Um, so I have a foot in both graves and uh, I, know, I know the print world really well because I've, I was a TV critic for The Observer for nine years. I've been, a journalist, I've been writing for major newspapers in Britain since 1982. Um, so I, I, I was part of the old system and I'm now part of the new system. And if you wanted to say what's changed, well, what's changed is that, and why is it problematic for mainstream media and why is it problematic for a subject? Well, what, what mainstream media, print media, all media don't get, and that applies to most of the journalists still working in it, is that they're now, instead of being the unique uh, purveyors of news and information, they're part of a conversation, and they're not good at conversation, they've never done it. But the difference is, supposing this were a religious meeting of some kind, 
and, and he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> well, it might be soon. Well, in that case, you'd be a, a quiet, passive audience listening with respect to this person. That's the way mainstream media were. Um, and what, what's happened is that our ecosystem has moved to the point where it's much more like what this room is really like. That is to say, where the three of us are on the panel, and maybe it's quite probable that there are people in this audience who know more about this stuff than we do. But that's a big idea to a newspaper journalist. The idea that his, his readers or her readers are smarter and better informed than they are. And that's the real question. Can, can, can we get over that? And so the question for journalism in all of this area is now not, we'll tell you the news, because most of us news, know, know the news before we hear it from them. Can, what value can we add to what our audience already knows? Or to what the people formerly known as the audience already know? Um, a couple of things about this new, new just a couple of points about this new ecosystem. Um, the sad truth is that there are upsides and downsides to it. Um, the upsides are that um, we get much more diversity, that news gets out more quickly, that it breaks the tyranny of, of, of news editors. For example, if you talk to good, serious Times journalists and technology journalists, say, take Rory Ketham Jones, who's the BBC's, BBC Television's technology correspondent. If you talk to Rory, he'll tell you that the greatest frustration in his life is having knowing that something important is happening in his area and trying to persuade the editor of the News of 10 that this is worth two minutes on the News of 10. That's a terrible problem. And if you talk to finance journalists, it's the same story. It's how to persuade these very hard-bitten cynics who are news editors and are total despots that what you have to tell is really important for the audience as a whole. Now, with, with, with the new ecosystem, those gatekeepers can be bypassed and are bypassed. And we see examples of that every day. Um, some of the good things about that are that uh, there's a famous thing in the software industry, which is um, the more eyeballs you have on a, on a piece of code, the fewer bugs it has. And in a way, that's also true of our new ecosystem, because you get out, if, if an idea is wrong, then lots and lots of people like you will have a go at it and spot its flaws and the rest of it. Um, and of course, it's harder to sense, it's hard to, keep, it's hard to keep stuff quiet. On the other hand, you have the downsides. The downsides are that you get the viral propagation of error. Um, some of you may have watched the, I mean, this is not a scientific case, but the, the Coney video, for example, which, which, which kind of got 76 million viewers last time I looked at. And, and spread like wildfire. Um, but, but, but the other thing about it, that's interesting, so on the one hand you get, you get this viral propagation of a video that may be misleading, may be wrong in some cases. Um, but you also get an awful lot of people out there looking at it critically and pointing out what's wrong with it. So you get this kind of much more, much more vivid, uh, informed, widespread public argument about stuff. You get fewer editorial sieves. Um, and as I say, I'm sorry to say this sounds like a Guardian editorial, this is both a good story and a bad story. Thank you for downloading this ThinkCon 2012 ThinkCast. Till next time.